Aren't you leaving something out? No. Mm. I'm not back. I'm not. You're back. I'm not. I'm You're not back. back. I I just I I've reactivated my account once a month. <laughs> Uh, just to keep it from from being completely deactivated. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Merry Christmas, Keith Foster from San Diego, California. Bah humbug, Cassidy Robinson, who is recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. If you are listening to this podcast right now, Christmas has already happened. You celebrated yesterday. If you take part in the Christmas holiday, either on religious or secular terms. We hope that you had a good one. And if you don't, we hope that you had a good day off. Yeah, and um, Happy Hanukkah, and Merry Kwanzaa, and uh, Happy Winter Solstice. Um, and a Festivus for the rest of us. <laughs> yes. We have a big show. We're catching up on... Yeah. End of the year movies, we're pretty much stuffing them in here wherever we can. Uh, so on this episode, we are going to be discussing Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio adaptation, released on Netflix. We will also be reviewing Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, which is still in theater, but you can also rent it on Amazon. And at the end of the podcast... David Cronenberg's latest film, which was released earlier in the year, which we watched on Hulu. Crimes of the Future. Yes, which I think we talked about, did a big Cronenberg retrospective in October. He had a short film called Crimes of the Future, like way back in the early 70s or late 60s. Uh, yeah, I think it was like one of his first, like, projects so i don't you know i don't know if it was like a student film or mm -hmm. just like a little short film to get his name out there so yeah i don't know if this is like just sort of a remake and expansion of that um uh but yeah we'll get into that a little bit more at the end of the episode i think we will so without any preamble i just want to get into the show because we have a lot to cover um we're going to cover a couple news stories before we get into the reviews, we shouldn't even be doing that, but we have so much to talk about because some some news gems have dropped. Yeah, it's a, it's that end of the year dump. Uh, so I'm going to start here. Let's try not to eat up too much time on this one because um, this is sort of a, a wad of info here, but... Uh, Big shakeups over at the DCEU. Wonder Woman 3, not happening. Black Adam 2, not happening. Any more Man of Steel movies or Superman appearances starring uh, Henry Cavill, not happening. And I think they've even uh, scrapped future Jason Momoa 
uh, Aquaman movies, although he has been talked about as possible roles elsewhere in the uh, the new version of the EC the DCEU, which is going to be head by James Gunn and Peter Safran. So they kind of went in and uh, junked the Snyderverse for parts. They're going to be doing their own thing. They're kind of starting fresh. I believe there's a handful of performances, and and I'm pretty sure uh, Margot Robbie's going to stay in as, as Harley Quinn. Um, all of the stuff from the, the Suicide Squad reboot is going to maintain. Obviously, it's the one he did. Well, I, I've heard that even that isn't necessarily the case. Like, I, it seems like sort of nothing is safe right now as far as DC properties. Mm-hmm. Um, except, I think, The Batman, which just came out this year. I think that one there they're still letting it breathe because it's kind of its own thing. Right. Well, that's, that's what I mean. Like that's the, the DCEU was always sort of a dog's breakfast because they were green lighting random shit all over the place. And it was loosely connected. And then you'd have stuff like Matt Reeves, Batman movie, which was not connected. And then you would have sequels that, disregarded the previous films while they were still sequeling stuff that did come from the previous film. So it was like the whole thing was always a mess. Yeah. That's basically my feeling of it is at this point, I trust James Gunn. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, you know, even if, even if you aren't necessarily like, I know you weren't a huge fan of like the most recent suicide squad, I think that he at least is approaching it from the perspective of a fan of these characters, of these properties, right? Whereas before it just kind of seemed like they were throwing shit at the wall and seeing what stuck. And, you know, I think the thing we've learned from Marvel, uh, you know, is having that one sort of figurehead, the Kevin Feige of Marvel where everything kind of funnels through it is at least a form of quality control. And I think the DC universe has needed that for a while. So I'm all about it. Uh, I, you know, I think they, I think this is what they needed. Just like everything was such a mishmash of like, is this connected? Do I care? Oh, this is setting up a sequel. Like, like, I, it, it was just such a mess of a thing that they were sort of trying to retroactively put together. It, if I was in James Gunn and Peter Safran's shoes, I would do the same thing. I'd just be like, this is a mess. Let's just start from scratch. You know, like, we don't have to rely on the Snyder imagery that has set the standard for so long. Like... Let's just do our own thing and and let things lie as they will. Like I, I feel like DC needed to make a bold move. And to me, this is the move, right? Right. Well, I mean, I think that James Gunn has the advantage of having worked with Marvel. So he, mm-hmm. he sees 
yeah, how he that knows model that works. He, yeah, he, mm-hmm. he, he's worked with them and for them. I believe he's probably still somewhat connected to that, which is kind of wild. Like we're at that stage in, in the superhero era that now we have somebody simultaneously working for two competing franchises. It, it is wild. And it's not at the same time. Like, you know, Kevin Feige, he worked on the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Like, it, it, it's not, you know, the ones that Sony produced. So it's not that crazy if you really think about it. Like yeah, The ones that and, people like. Yeah. And again, I, I think that DC needed, the, needed that kind of, it needs that kind of synergy. So well, it needs a steady hand of leadership and it needs. Um, yes. And it. It needs the convictions to make decisions and stick with them, even if something doesn't land, uh, Mm. uh, rather than doing what they have been doing, which is go into panic mode and just start, okay, well, scrap that. Let's do this instead. Uh, This still counts. That doesn't. Um, We'll have three different cuts of the movie come out on DVD. always just sort of been building on the previous project regardless right Right. regardless of how much people liked thor the dark world they were like okay uh, you know that wasn't it didn't shift the paradigm uh let's move on let but it still exists it's still part of the larger story we're telling right and i you know if you're doing this kind of connected multiverse i feel like that's what you need to do is like you know, you need to buy into everything. But here's the rest of the story is, and I, I, I suspect James Gunn knows this going in, even though he's coming this late in the game. Mm-hmm. And obviously Marvel is eons ahead of where DC wants to be mm-hmm. in terms of their cinematic properties and um, creating a multiverse, uh, or not a multiverse, but a uh, a cinematic universe. I hope that he's smart enough to know we don't have to get to the finish line or get at the same point in X amount of movies. I hope that he's smart enough to know, let's take this one film at a time. Let's worry about the quality of the product mm-hmm. and making sure that we're telling compelling stories for these characters and getting the audience to care about them so that when and if they team up later on, it doesn't just feel like, you know, WWE wrestling. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, right? Endgame would not have worked if that was, if that had come out during the first Avengers film, you know what I mean? Like if it had come out, then it wouldn't, you wouldn't have had a decade of building up to this point. And the, I mean, we've said it over and over and over again. The reason the MCU basically works is that each movie gets to be its own thing. Like at its best. I mean, they don't always succeed in that. And there are plenty no, of movies don't. that are just connective tissue, if, especially if you look back sure, at them but those are a the few ones years that later. Generally, people respond to less. Yeah. Uh, and, and usually saying, they're, I, they're entertaining enough, but there are a yeah. lot of them that are 
that are just there really as bridges to the next thing. Well, um, I mean, you know, especially lately, especially with the the phase four has has been kind of a weird rebuilding period for them. And, and yeah, again, you, you're not going to hit a home run every time. Uh, but as long as your average is good, right? Like you, you got a money ball, this shit. You base it off of the the averages, not the most home runs hit. You base it off of the steadiness of it. I, anyway, th- mm. we're talking about this way too much. I'm yeah. all for it. I think DC Universe, uh, that town needed an enema. Um, <laughs> and hopefully James Gunn and Peter Safran are... You know, I I like their conviction. I like that they're not afraid to shake things up. And I think that they know how the successful model of this works. So I am all for it. I just, I do still hope we get a sequel to The Batman because uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, um, I want to see that that universe uh, thrive and, and it, you know... Specifically, yeah, that. I'd like to see that build, um, right? But again, I think it has the advantage of kind of being its own thing. So, uh, I, I, and I think that's what these other properties need to do as well. And, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm for the first time in a long time actually pretty excited to see what it comes out of DC. We shall see. Okay, Keith, I was gonna try and surprise you with this, but somebody, uh, I mean, it was it's been like two weeks, so. It, I was hoping a lot, but Mike Flanagan and Trevor Macy reveal a Dark Tower adaptation in the works, uh, I believe for Amazon. So Yeah, originally they were talking uh, to Netflix and then they left and now they are going to be working with Amazon, which I think is the right move since Netflix gets a literal boner for canceling projects early. (laughs) Let me stop you right there. So I listened to the King cast episode where they break down like all the minutia of this. That's actually where I heard about it. Was, okay. Uh, I was like looking for a podcast to listen to. And I was like, they discuss Mike Flanagan's dark. T- what the fuck? <laughs> um, and so I listened to it. So apparently, and I don't, you know, I'm not a Hollywood insider like they are. So I don't understand all the minutia of it. But from what I understand, is Mike Flanagan is working his contract with Netflix is up uh and after like he has a couple projects that are going to be released over the next couple of years or something but like you know that are basically done uh so his contract with them is up so he's working with this studio that is independent from any any of the streamers directly right. i think amazon has a first look at it but from what I understand, they have the option to shop it around as well, which is huge because yeah. Amazon already passed on a Dark Tower series that they shot a full pilot for. I remember that. Yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah, yeah. And they they passed on it because uh, at the time they thought it was too expensive and they were really buying into Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power at the time. Um, yeah, which is also so very like, expensive. You know, we, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that Amazon is definitely going to be very interested in this project. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. This is the dream, right? Like, yeah. I feel like Mike Flanagan as 
I mean, he is a Stephen King fan. And it shows from his work. It shows from watching stuff like Gerald's Game and Doctor Sleep. And I think, I, I, you know, and he has done a bunch of miniseries, um, which show, you know, show that he can work in TV. Uh, uh, I, I, I mean, this is just the dream scenario. This is what every Dark Tower fan has been hoping for, because um, the Dark Tower deserves. It deserves that epic. Like, it needs to be a series. And from what I understand, uh, what they are working, what they have pitched, what they're working on is a project which, you know, the deal will include, like, five seasons and two movies or some shit. Like, it's very ambitious Mm -hmm. from what I understand, which, again, the Dark Tower needs. Like, you know, I, I watched the Dark Tower movie the one with Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey and it's it's hot dog diarrhea like it is yeah one of the worst movies I've seen um and you just you can't approach the dark tower like that like it it, there's just too much mythology built into it and if anyone understands that it's Mike Flanagan and uh yeah just incredibly exciting time to be a dark tower fan um it it is still that series is uh and i've read a lot of stephen king at this point it's still my favorite when i heard the news i was legit mad that no one told me because like people know i'm a a a dark tower fan they know i'm a stephen king fan they know i'm a mike flanagan fan a fanagan uh (laughs) I I think if anything proves that he can do this, it's Dr. Sleep, which, you know, you can go back and listen to our episode where we review it. But, like, the fact that he was able to blend the Kubrick adaptation with the book, it it, it was a masterstroke. And that is the kind of mind you need to approach the Dark Tower. Mm -hmm. Because the Dark Tower, you know, there's all this convergence of... Stephen King multiverse nonsense and and you just need a fan. You need a fan and you need somebody who knows how to make that stuff work. So, uh yeah. Very excited. Yeah, I agree. I uh have nothing really to add to that. I'm a I think Mike Flanagan is uniquely suited for this. And uh there's there's few people that I trust more for this specific project because of its complexity, yeah. because of how careful you have to be, because of the well, the rich lore, and you know that anybody working on this is going to have to kind of pick and choose what they keep in and leave out and how much sure. story they want to include. And I think Flanagan's going to know exactly – what's important yeah. to the fans um, while and still holding to on to the story and the script and making the narrative work. Absolutely. I th- I think this is like, this is the dream scenario. This is like, mm. I, th- I think I even mentioned on another episode that like, I, I hope, you know, I would love to see Mike Flanagan. Do oh, it sure. I mean, it w- I think it was kind of a, a meme um, you know, give it yeah, to Flanagan. I mean, it's been on the lips and hearts of every uh, every Stephen King fan for the past 
five years, right? Like, yeah, it, it, I I feel like every project Mike Flanagan has done has been an audition for the Dark Tower. <laughs> like, it, it just feels like it's all been building to this. So, very optimistic. Agreed. All right, let's go ahead and move on to the reviews. Uh, we'll get started here with Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, and I'll, I'll go ahead and set this up. Um, we talked about earlier when we reviewed Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio that he did for Disney that uh, there's a lot of Pinocchio movies. Um, and Especially this year. Th- yes, this year there's been at least three that I know of. I think there might be more. Um, and if you just Google or IMDb search Pinocchio, you'll notice something like two or three a year consistently because it's public domain. You know, it's an easy kind of thing to do. Like, you know, the story of Pinocchio, even if you've never read it or heard, you know what I mean? Yeah. Everybody it's just ingrained in our DNA at this point. True. But in case you've forgotten... The story of Pinocchio. <laughs> and there is some differences in Del Toro's adaptation here. Yes. And we'll, we'll go over those. But uh, Geppetto had a son who died in an accident. This takes place in World War II Italy uh, under the rule of Mussolini. So during... Well, his, his son dies in World War One, but... Then, you know, time passes. Yeah, so his his son dies. He uh, stays around to to work on a church. He's building a giant crucifix. Uh, Ewan McGregor as the cricket, otherwise known as Jiminy Cricket, although he's not listed as such here. Uh, Yeah, I think he's Sebastian or something. I don't know. He makes his home as a writer inside of a, a... pine tree this tree in a rage of grief one night is chopped down by geppetto and quickly carved and wired together as a marionette otherwise known as pinocchio some blue sprites create something like an angel or fairy that brings him to life and geppetto is told to take care of the boy and teach him right from wrong and make sure that he gets an education. And I guess the big differences here that we really see from even just the first third of this is Geppetto's relationship to Pinocchio is a lot less immediate Mm -hmm. instead of like, Oh, I am making a new son for myself. He wakes. He awakens out of a drunken slumber and is like, "Oh, well, you're not my son. You're just a puppet." The creation of Pinocchio in this version, Guillermo del Toro is wearing his influences on his sleeve, and it, because it's very Frankenstein, right? It's, yeah. it's it's horrific. It's this, you know, like this isn't supposed to be alive, and right. now I'm responsible for it. Like it, it is. It, it's not a son at first. It's a burden. You know, it is this, mm-hmm. it, it's almost a curse. You know, I 
did this thing in a, a sort of a drunken rage and now I'm suffering the consequences of it versus the Disney adaptation where it's just sort of immediate like, oh, I have a new boy. Right. Exactly. And of course, uh, the the cricket um, who still lives in uh, a small hole in where Pinocchio's heart would be uh, still travels along and is trying to do his best at uh, teaching him right from wrong. But, you know, there's also I, I like the depiction of Pinocchio here, too, in that he's naive in the same ways that we've seen other Pinocchios. Uh, but it's the naivety isn't necessarily cute. He kind of kind of a jerk. Mm-hmm. He sort of is a burden. He he just acts in entirely amorally. Like if you just strip somebody of their knowledge of good and evil, and there's mm-hmm. a whole lot of bib- biblical allegory in this movie, and a whole lot of Catholic guilt uh, <laughs> in, in this movie. If you strip somebody entirely of their knowledge of good and evil, then there's this struggle that happens between Geppetto and the cricket, um, who has to instill humanity in this thing, and the fascist government, who is trying to lead him to become a drone for, you know, cannon fodder for their world domination... And There's this interesting element that this movie specifically plays with, and that you know that is the the setting of it being in uh, you know a war torn Italy, which yeah. none of the previous incarnations of Pinocchio I've seen have sort of dealt with that. Right. Um, it, it, it's always just sort of been you know old Italy or or just kind of fairy tale land outside of of actual time and place this is very specifically like you know war-torn fascist italy and uh and there's also a lot of you know uh, of issue with pinocchio is not a real boy he is a wooden boy who was given life by these fairy spirits so he is immortal he he is not you know, he has a wooden body, so anytime his body breaks, uh, there's this very interesting scene where he goes to the afterlife, and, and sort of each time he goes, he's there a little bit longer and a little bit longer, but he knows he's going to come back. And right. uh, you, the, the fascist, played by Ron Perlman, witnesses this and decides... And, you know, thinks, oh, well, you know, we can have an unkillable soldier. Right. Um, and he, he has to serve his country. He uh, has a unit of child soldiers, which his son is also a member of, mm-hmm. um, uh, voiced by Finn Wolfhard. And, and I, and, you know, it's interesting that that's, that's the portion of the story that usually is Pleasure Island, right? Yeah. And... In that version of the story, the the classic Disney version where they go off and gamble and drink and play pool and turn into donkeys, here they're being trained for war and the jackass that they become isn't just out of selfishness 
and a want for hedonism and pleasure, but it is this idea of, you know, the fascist ideal of what masculinity is, which is anti-human. So this whole idea of like becoming yeah. a real boy has nothing to do with turning into a literal flesh person or not, but it's learning right from wrong is the antithesis mm -hmm. of fascist ideology, which is m might makes right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I like this. I like this quite a bit. It's, re I, I think this as a story, I'm most interested when it diverts because we've seen a lot of Pinocchio's. Um, yeah, and, and you still have some of the same beats, especially early on, you know. Yeah. He's got to go to school, and he gets seduced by uh, this sort of life as a performer. Um, he gets sort of tricked into this life. Um, There's a few musical uh, numbers which, which seem extraneous and a little bit... Like, I, I just now remember that they tried to do that, and it seems like even the movie loses interest in that <laughs> after a while. I will say the music isn't it's Super. not bad. It's not something that I don't think it it deters the movie, but it doesn't it's not like it's not a selling point. No, and it doesn't necessarily help the movie either. It it, it doesn't um uh imbue any of the scenes with anything that we couldn't get otherwise. Uh that the sure. story wasn't already doing just fine. Um as far as the design goes, this is all done in stop motion animation. Um, it has Which a very Leica. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the Leica productions that are done in Oregon. Yeah. Um, and this wasn't done through that studio, but it certainly evokes movies like Coraline and Paranorman and Box Trolls and that kind of stuff. So if you like that look, this is done similarly. And uh, you know, there's a little, at the end of the the program. If you watch it on Netflix, you even see like a little behind the scenes of some of the puppetry and they, you know, the, the scaling that they would have to do. Some of the, some of the puppets were actually almost life size or bigger. And oh, wow. some were, uh, to be able to create, you know, the epic scope of like them in the ocean and things like that were like only like an inch. So oh, they wow. had like multiple sizes of all of these, of these characters. It is very Del Toro. In his love of the monster and the and the the rejected from society, you know, the sympathy towards the monster and all of that stuff is is there. There's also we've seen him dealing with kids in war in a lot of movies. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think he's a fan. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't think he loves when that happens. Uh, yeah, I think this is maybe the most. Probably because it's made for kids, ostensibly. So it draws those parallels a lot more literally than, say, something like Pan's Labyrinth or or The Devil's Backbone, um, which kind of toggles back and forth between fantasy and reality. This movie is sort of its, its own world. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say it's sort of strict kind of pure fantasy yeah um but uh, i i liked it a lot i don't like the monkey as far as designs go uh the monkey was a little creepy but i think that was intentional <laughs> um yeah no i think 
I think this is, was this was one of those projects that when I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, of course this is what Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio would be like. But I think, you know, I, I think it's sort of a culmination of a lot of his obsessions as a filmmaker. And I think because of that, it, it creates a fresh version of a story that we've seen a hundred thousand times. Like, you know, the, everybody knows this story frontwards and backwards, but by giving this, this like, sort of extended prologue where we actually see Geppetto with his son for once and seeing the way, you know, this fascist country uh, indoctrinates its youth and just, you know, generally the anti-war message of it all. Like, to me, it was just, it it just felt like a fresh take on a, a story that is so old and sort of crusty and and stale that um i i yeah i liked it a whole lot yeah another one of my favorite design aspects of it creature design specifically is you know when they go to like that purgatory state oh yeah i really love the like biblically accurate eyeball angels well, I I just loved all of that. Uh the angels, the the weird ha- dead rabbits. rabbits that were like half skeleton and like they're scary, but they're just blue collar afterlife workers who just kind of want to do their job and play poker. I, again, the the creature design, well just the character design in general. I know you weren't a fan of the monkey, but um it's top notch. Like the, mm-hmm. the fairies are, you know, it's a blue fairy, but again, it's a take that I haven't seen before. Uh, Pinocchio's a wooden boy, and he's cute and inviting in a way that I haven't seen before. Like it just, it just looks like a Guillermo del Toro movie, and that alone adds this level that we didn't get from the Robert Zemeckis version that was, you know, was right. just sort of trying to bring the cartoon to life in, in a weird way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is, for me, the stronger of the two. Uh, I can't speak for the weird Russian one with Polly Shore doing the voice, um, but there's that one out there, too. Yeah, something tells me I'm probably going to prefer this version. <laughs> I think I think probably me, too. Yeah, I, I recommend this. I think it's I think it's good. I think it's it does the all ages family fair thing, but in a way that doesn't talk down to kids. Mm-hmm. Um if you are a fan of Guillermo del Toro's more fantasy driven stuff or dark dark fantasy, dark fairy tale stuff, um it's kind of in line with that. Not as explicit with the horror elements, but but done really well. There's there is an aspect of it to me that's still pretty familiar in that it's you know it's still Pinocchio, and maybe I'm just Pinocchioed out right now. Um, sure. But and I I kind of wish I hadn't seen the Zemeckis one so so recently, and I think I would have enjoyed this one more. Of course. I know this has been one of the projects that he's been wanting to make for a really long time. So it's not like this was like a cash grab or like he just tried to get it in under the table kind of thing. Like he, 
it's been on his list of things he's wanted to do for well, and and this decades. type of animation, this like stop motion animation, takes a notoriously long time to do. Uh, yeah, it's it's why we don't have Leica pictures as you know we don't have two of them a year like we have Pixar movies. Like right, it just it 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 is a, a time consuming process. Um, and it doesn't have you, the budgets of something like a Disney project. There is something. Ca- by the nature of stop motion animation, there's something handcrafted about it, something tactile to it that you don't get yeah. with with a lot of uh, Disney pictures. Even their quote unquote live action remakes, like The Lion King or the or the Zemeckis Pinocchio movie, which is mostly shot on a soundstage with a green screen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This feels tactile. It feels, and and I think that just leads to an inherent connection um that you can't fake mm. um yeah I, d- I don't know i i yeah i've seen a lot of pinocchio adaptations again like you said there's been a lot this year but to me this one stood out by a a giant wooden nose like it just it, the fact that there was anything that there was even a fresh take on this story at all. And, you know, it's just, it's from this place of Guillermo del Toro of kind of wearing his emotion on his sleeve. Like, you know, this is a very emotional story. It's a very, mm-hmm. um, personal. Yeah. Like you said, it doesn't talk down to kids. It deal, it deals with life and death and war and all of these sort of bigger, things that unfortunately kids have to kind of grow up into and the fact that it was able to do that in a Pinocchio adaptation and make it entertaining and something new for me to see you know that I feel like it's almost a handicap going in you know like that you're making a Pinocchio movie like you have to fight against all of the preconceived notions of what that story already is so it's almost harder to create something you you haven't seen before, um, so I, I feel like I've you know got to give the the team credit for that. Yep, um, I'm giving it a B plus. I'm giving this one an A minus. Let's go ahead and talk about the Fablemans then, and I'll let you set this one up. Yeah, so the Fablemans is a, a loosely veiled uh, semi autobiographical movie uh, directed by Steven Spielberg about this young boy, uh, Sammy Fableman, who grows up uh, obsessed with movies and making movies. And he grows up in this household with uh, his parents, where one is more of a free spirit um, and, and an artist and more emotional um, uh, played by Michelle Williams, and then one that is much more logical and pragmatic. His father, played by Paul Dano, um, brilliant, but maybe not as uh, emotionally in tune. And the family's good friend Benny, played by Seth Rogen. You know, it's coming of age story. It spans his life as a young man from. You know, from a child making movies with his sisters um, to, you know, a teenager 
making bigger and bigger sort of productions uh, with like his scout troop and moving on to high school um, where he kind of rejects movies for a while. Uh, it's this coming of age story about a, a child is sort of torn by these two influences who just wants to make movies and, and how, you know, both his mother and his father affect what he brings to that. Mm-hmm. And this takes place during the time of Steven Spielberg's childhood. So it's roughly the mostly the 50s and 60s we're seeing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, 50s to about the mid 60s or, or so when he leaves to go to college in Los Angeles, um, where he would eventually go on to make his first, you know, first work in episodic television, then work in film. Um, I've watched the Behind the Actor Studio with Steven Spielberg multiple times. I've seen a lot of interviews with Spielberg. This is pretty close. I don't know exactly what here is Fictional. embellished or yeah. or uh, what they leave out or, or add in. But as far as I recall, all of this pretty much is what happened, even down to the location. So, you know, uh, moving from um, uh, where they start, somewhere in the Midwest, right? Or the New Jersey? Uh, yeah, I think they, they start out in Jersey and then move to make their way to Phoenix and then, uh, Northern California. Yeah. Uh, because his father worked for IBM or uh, the early days of computer technology. And in fact, I think it was James Lipton, uh, in the inside the actor studio, uh, interview who, who made the observation that in close encounters of the third kind, Man makes first contact with the mothership through computers and music, the two occupations of his mother and father. And even Spielberg hadn't made that observation himself at that point. Although, Hmm. if you, especially having seen this, or if you know anything about that, but that is interesting. Yeah. Uh, if, and if you go back to all of his movies, his there's an autobiographical element to a lot of his work. Now he doesn't sure always write his own movies. Um, I think more more often than not he doesn't. This one he co-wrote with Tony Kushner, who he also co-wrote Lincoln with. So they have a working relationship, uh, and it was written during the time of COVID, um, and started filming shortly thereafter. But, I mean, you could go back to, the, you know, the single mother stuff in E.P., the absent father stuff, which appears over and over and over again in his movies. The, the, the father-son dynamic is a major common thread in his, uh, in his cinema um, and something he's always – always works its way into the story. Either by allegory or sometimes just, you know, purely in the text. Uh, even something like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when we when he introduces the father into that story and the, the fraught relationship that they have. Uh, so it's interesting to kind of see him 
deal in all of these themes in one way or another through allegory or, you know, alongside sharks and dinosaurs and robots and and mm-hmm. whatever else, Nazis. And- well, and I, I think that's largely a, a, a big contributing factor to his success is he, you know, he does deal with uh sharks and dinosaurs and and monsters and 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 things like that but sure uh i mean you know he's always been a this populist filmmaker that's that's the yeah, type of movies but, he loves those are the type of movies he grew up on and those are the types of movies that he continues to make like yeah but but uh, you know the reason something like jaws stands out the reason like jurassic park the the reason these Spielberg at his height movies, I think, connect with people is because there is that human element. You know, the mm. they aren't just sort of uh, placeholder characters. Like, there's a purpose to that. There, you know, all of the characters have a relationship and a dynamic beyond just sort of, you know, beyond just sort of uh, uh, script mechanics. And I, I think Spielberg as a director is able to to connect with that in a way that not many other directors can um he he is able to make you you feel like you're a part of whatever family dynamic you're watching on screen like he you know i i think that's why he's sort of so successful as an everyman director is he can make you feel like you're you're a part of this dynamic Right, and he always does a lot of a lot of work in establishing his actors, his cast, his characters, the scene, the setting. All of that stuff is just as important as the payoff. You know, yeah. Exactly. How long is like, it before we? I mean, you know, famously the shark didn't work, whatever. But um, how long is it before we see Jaws? How long is it before we see the first dinosaur in Jurassic Park? Um, well, yeah, and, and how long is it before we see the T Rex? You know what I mean, like the the, yeah. the big, the big payoff. Exactly, like it's it's not just a movie about dinosaurs. That if you want that, those you know, the Jurassic World movies exist right um, <laughs> now. Uh, but you know, there's a reason I go back and watch Jurassic Park. You know, it, it there's. Just all of this other stuff going on that's that's interesting, which is why once dinosaurs are introduced into that, once a shark is introduced into that, it is scary because you right. you don't want these characters to get eaten. You have an attachment. Um, the point that I'm making in, in saying that is, you know, we've seen him do that on a subtextual or semi-textual level in all of his genre fare. Um, and here it seems like the creative impulse or the, the challenge that he set for himself was to, can I still do that without the framework of a, of a more established genre to, to give people a way in to, just the character stuff. It's like he's whittling away all of the stuff that would normally give somebody the leverage to tell a a, fa- a father's hunt story or or whatever. 
Um, not that you necessarily have to have that to be able to do that, but with somebody like Spielberg, there's something like an expectation, especially when he's dealing so personally in his own life. It reminds sure. me of like, do you remember the the opening sequence to Toy Story 2? Yeah. In Toy Story 2, it imagines Andy in his room playing with the toys, but it, it does it uh, cinematically. So we're, we're watching him, we're watching Buzz and Woody rescue Bo Peep off the tracks of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of this uh, uh, train that's going by, and you know, as it would be if they were, if there was a literal train, there were literal sheep, and he really could fly and everything. And then it, it pans out from that, and you see, oh, it's just Andy playing with his action figures, and it's a you know train set, which this movie also deals in train sets. Um, but that it reminded me of that, that idea of like Spielberg's kind of doing that with his own life. He's like, you know what I mean? He's like he's taking away sure, the robots, yeah. he's taking away the the pizzazz of of the genre stuff and just giving you this is the thing I meant. This is what this is the story I was actually telling this whole time. And I'll, sure. I'll be the first one to admit that before this movie, before I saw this movie, which I'll just say, I, you know, right now I liked, I was very skeptical in part because it's been a while since I've seen the Spielberg movie that's done a lot for me, um, both, you know, in his dramas and his action films. I haven't seen one that I've been particularly fond of in uh, it, at least since like Munich, but also because this is the type of thing that could be maybe maudlin or reductive. Overly sentimental. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't sure exactly how this would pan out. And I am happy to say that I thought that it was, I was surprised how invested I got into it and how much the, the characters sort of revealed themselves in something I basically already knew all about. Like, I knew this story. Yes. I agree with you. I, ba I okay. I liked this movie, um, but I don't think it's without its flaws. I, I do think this movie's overly long. And to me, this movie felt like, and, and maybe this is just me. This, maybe this, this might be, this might be kind of a hot take. To me, this movie felt like a bunch of really great scenes, like like mm -hmm. just some fantastic scenes that, e you know, each one could kind of have been its own little short movie. But I don't know that the connective tissue of his life as a story necessarily worked as one long story. Like, I... I and there are moments where, especially kind of early on, um, there are moments where I was very frustrated because I felt like the characters were just doing that thing that I hate in writing where they're just sort of laying it all out on the line and, and saying, like, exactly what the deal of the scene is. Um, 
There's luckily, a little bit of the that. movie kind of yeah. eased away from that. Um, but especially like very early in the movie, there's a lot of there's a couple of scenes of uh, you know Michelle Williams just being like, "Well, he's an artist. He's going to make art," and Paul Dano being like, "Well, he's also not an artist." And right, there right. there were just moments of like, "Okay, I get it. Like he's being sort of torn apart by these two influences. Like I don't need you to actually say that." Uh, and and that's what I mean when I say it's overly long. Like I think, I think had some of that fat been chewed away from it, it could have been amazing instead of just being really really good. Yeah, I, I don't think it's without its weaknesses. Yeah, but 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 what I would say is that I think that the strong points here are stronger than what we've seen in Spielberg's work for a while for me. And it yeah, does, and it does I, I mean, kind of take can... a while to sort of settle in. I'll give you that. Like the first 15 minutes or so, uh, it, 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 it kind of was what I was worried it was going to be, which was mm-hmm. this kind of cleaver-esque Americana, everything's sort of Robin's egg green and, it just everything's a little glamorized, but I actually think there's a narrative purpose for why it was that way. Because well, sure. as and, and when you're a kid, especially a kid right. growing up in the age of the Cleavers, like of course it would feel like that. Like well, that, I, that. I think that, and I think there's also you know thematically the movie saying something about how like how you view everything is ideal until there's sort of a loss of innocence element to the story and then that's when the movie begins to feel more and more sort of settled into an actual reality i i think the first half of the movie you know the seth rogan arc is the most compelling stuff in the movie and yeah you agree and i think that that in and of itself is almost enough not quite enough but almost enough to warrant its own film once that comes to its logical conclusion, and we still have a whole second half of the movie, the California stuff, and the the movie kind of does a hard reset, yeah. and, it, and it almost has to like find another story to tell, and we get this story about him being bullied and and dealing with anti semitism, and that's it's interesting. It's it, but it, it does kind of feel like episode two to <laughs> to season one of the Fablemans. Um, yeah, and, and, it, and that's uh, what I mean. That that's exactly what I'm talking about when I'm when I say that it felt like a bunch of fantastic scenes. There's a lot of vignettes. Yeah, I, and I think and, there, a little bit of that is fine. I think there's, you know, I think you can, I think you can do that in a movie like this to some extent. Like, absolutely, you get the little Judd Hirsch vignette, right, where Uncle whatever comes in and. He's this wild man who was literally raised in like vaudeville and circuses and stuff like that, and he ends up having this big influence on on uh, Sam's life, and that's a fun little vignette that I think is perfectly placed, and it doesn't it doesn't uh, uh, muddy up the waters uh, of the overarching narrative too much. But I do, I do agree that the first half of the film, or I, I believe that the first half of the film is 
much stronger than the second half. And then we're kind of coasting off the strength of the first half until we get to the end of the second half. Um, I was in enough to enjoy the other stuff, the high school stuff. But yeah, I think the meat of the movie is really in the fir- in that first hour 15 well, or and, so. And y- yes, and, that, and that's exactly what I'm talking about when... You know, I again, I think this movie's a little too long. And I think, you know, from a storytelling perspective, I get that it's Spielberg's life, but maybe they should have carried some of that arc over a little bit more to connect with sort of that later high school story because it does feel so sort of disparate. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, there's kind of... You know, there's a logical conclusion to that story, but emotionally that story was kind of already dealt with. And I think they could have, again, just from a a script perspective, could have weaved that in a little bit more so that maybe it's not as true to Spielberg's life, but, you know, this is not Spielberg. This is the Fablemans. You, you know, like, right. why are we going to fictionalize it if we're not going to use that to our advantage um, and, and to create, you know, something that sort of works together as a single narrative a, a little bit more? Um, and, and I agree. Like, I don't have a problem with vignettes within the movie as a whole to justify, you know, to justify a two and a half hour runtime. I just want them all to kind of connect and pay off a little bit, um, which isn't necessarily the case. And that's, that's okay. But again, I think it, for me, it held this movie back um, from elevating it to, you know, instant classic to, yeah, I enjoyed that. Like I, I enjoyed the movie, but do you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I was, I was more, along for the ride. I think just because especially if I'm watching something from home, if I am not checking the time about every 10 minutes or if sure. I'm not, you know, getting up to get something to eat or whatever, if I'm actually invested in the story, I feel like it's working. And that's what it was doing for me, which doesn't always happen. Yeah, and and I mean you have also some amazing performances here too. Like, yeah, I think uh, the strength of the the strength of the of the performances uh, uh, alone. Gabriel Labelle as uh, the older Sam Fableman. I mean, I think he's going to be one to watch. Mm-hmm. Like that, I think it's a very good portrayal of a high school boy, but with complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul Dano. Okay, there's this thing with Paul Dano where he typically plays like a creep or a weirdo, right? Like, I think he gets kind of typecast a lot. Yeah. Um, So it's very refreshing to see him play someone so grounded, but it also made me incredibly anxious (laughs) because it's Paul Dano. I was kind of always waiting for that other foot to drop. Well, I knew uh, he was I'm glad it he wasn't going to become the actual zodiac or something like that. 
But no, but I was just I was waiting for the abuse arc or the the you know the kind of dark turn or you know or uh, the uh, you can't make movies. Uh, I forbid at the very least I forbid you from making movies, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but and there's some implication of that. But you know, ultimately, it is a, a sensitive interior performance. Um, yes. Without ever, without it ever being so explicit and overly dramatized, right? Uh, I think what he mines from Paul Dano's uh, toolkit is that what he what he usually uses in a sort of sinister way in some of these other films, he uses here to just show somebody who's socially awkward. Yeah, well, they, maybe yeah, there's, a, there's a disconnection, and maybe you on get the that spectrum, immediately. like it, they never say that, but that's kind of implied. And I think that sure, uh, you know the 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 way that juxtaposes to Michelle Williams, who's a total extrovert, and mm-hmm. it it helps kind of derive that that thing of like, well, of course this marriage wasn't going to work. Of course, there's. You know, it's um, fraught. And they, even if they love each other, there's kind of an impasse there. Uh, just on a personality yeah, and, level. And because of that, there there's this, like, there's this interesting silent tension through the movie mm-hmm. um, that made me very anxious, like I said. Uh, uh, because, you know, um, uh, Michelle Williams... Uh, her character seems sort of manic depressive, right? You know, where she has right. these high highs and these low lows. And again, I'm, I'm sort of expecting, uh, cause I, I didn't know a lot of this story of Spielberg's life. Uh, so I'm sort of expecting like the suicide arc or the, the I was always sort of waiting for this darker turn. And, I think the movie really won me over by not buying into that, by not, by being able to tell, you know, sort of a similar emotional story without having to rely on the melodrama. Um, And so that is an aspect I very much appreciated. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I think the, the element of, of it that again, could be a little precious and mileage may vary for people as far as this goes with this idea of like Sam really only being able to make sense of his life by filming it and by editing it and by viewing it through some sort of sense of control. Like that was his, his need to direct is really a need to, to create control out of chaos yes and i wish i I really wish we could have gotten to that conclusion ourselves without michelle williams literally stating that in the first 15 minutes that's what i mean like there's the moments that kill me but then there's these moments where they're dealing with all of these issues and this complexities and this movie has these moments of tell and they drive me nuts um, because 
there's these scenes that are so brilliantly written and shot where you know what's going on even without a character explicitly stating it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of that. I would say there's less of that than I than you get in a lot of mainstream movies these days. Um especially sure. in a post television yes. age or post golden age of television whatever age we're in right now where most people's experience to long form narrative is through television which by its very nature is a a more of a tell kind of genre than a mm-hmm. show genre i think this movie does a good enough job at at doing that it does there's a little bit of hand holding but less than i would have expected actually um so i'm giving yes, the movie and an uh, a fairly enthusiastic b plus I I really enjoyed this one a lot. Um, also, my favorite ending to a movie I've seen this year. The last scene yes. is Chef's Kiss. The, it, exactly. And it, the, this movie has those moments of, of A-plus material. Yeah. Um, and the last scene is one of them. Is Yes, it's absolutely... Oh, God. It's, it's perfect. Um, mm. it, and... and I guess it was frustrating to me that the the entire movie wasn't uh, because it has these moments of perfection. Uh, but yeah, I actually ended up with the same score, a B plus. I think mm-hmm. this is solid, and it is worth it. There is enough meat here that it's worth the indulgences. Yeah, and there wasn't as many like obnoxious wink and nod at the camera, self-referential, chubby moments that would have been mm-hmm. very easy to to fill in here. Like, I was expecting a warning sharks on the beach sign when they're, when he's, they're, when they're doing the senior ditch day or something. Or, sure, yeah. Or, like, them look at him looking at the stars and imagining a spacecraft or something, like... I'm glad yeah, it, they actually, didn't uh, do fairly that. Fairly restrained as far as that goes. Yeah, which yeah, I'm I am also glad for. So yeah, right now you it is uh, available to rent on Amazon or purchase, but it is also still in theaters. Um, I think so. It is a, a little lengthy. It's maybe a tad it too is, long. I, I mean, ultimately, it's it's always watchable. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you can get away with a little lengthy if it's still entertaining, if it's still well done. Uh, I just think for the story that they were trying to tell, they sort of overtold it. And we could have carved 15, 20 minutes off of that. But it's fine. You know, if you're a fan of Spielberg, I think you should watch this. Okay. Let's get into Crimes of the Future. This is yeah. the latest film uh, directed by David Cronenberg. It's on Hulu now, but it was released earlier in the year. It takes place in the future where man is starting to evolve and people are born with new organs that they are discovering. Like, they're, they're sort of of no function or use for the most part, and in some cases can be 
very dangerous, like a cancer. But, uh, twist on all of this, people have also evolved past the point of feeling pain. So, this society often performs acts of surgery in these productions or uh, live art installations where we see our main characters, uh, played by Viggo Mortensen, as Saul Tenser and his assistant girlfriend, played by Leah Sadu, uh, Caprice. They use this high-tech sarcophagus-like device to perform these um, artistic surgeries while at the same time dealing with what seems to be multiple points of interest in their profession. So, you know, we have these uh, different uh, competing surgical agencies who might have a different perspective of everything. Um, Kristen Stewart uh, works uh, there, and she seems to have some sort of fascination with sort of going more towards the aesthetic purposes of this. And then we also have Scott Speedman, whose son uh, was killed by his wife because he was ingesting plastic and... She was sort of turned off by this or was scared of it and smothers him. Scott Speedman wants to use this uh, veneer of art as a way to do uh, what should be an illegal autopsy to, to see why, what organs he is now growing or obtained through his mutation that allows him to be able to painlessly and uh, safely ingest plastic. So uh, this is a David Cronenberg movie. <laughs> if that wasn't obvious by all of the description, there's a lot going on here. Uh, maybe too much going on, in my opinion. Um, in terms yeah, I of, I kind of agree. I wanted this one to hold my hand a little bit more, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that is not something I normally ask for. Um, but you know, we're dealing with some high concept sci-fi yeah. uh, that is sometimes a little hard to keep up with. Well, the whole movie is world building and yeah, I feel and like there's, there's, a- there's so much, there's so much to explain that yeah. for at least the first half of the movie, um, it is nothing but exposition, just these info dumps with every single yeah, but- but, line of dialogue. Yes and no. There, there's these info dumps, but they're still done in a way that's kind of coy, uh, and so it leads to at least some confusion for me as to like, okay, who's actually like doing? You're a part of the government agency, or what? What exactly is illegal? And you know, there's just these. Uh, it's done in a way that isn't as obvious as exposition can be and right because there's a mystery element that's that's part of this as well so there is some red herrings and whatnot um as he's introducing all of these different subplots i think my thing is it's not so much that it's i need to be guided through the world building as i would have liked this movie to have two or less subplots 
just to yeah. just to kind of be able to connect to something, well, you know. And, and it's like there's so much going on that there's this. It almost feels like there's this sense that like people won't be on board with it uh, because this movie's slow, and I think at times it is a little boring, which is interesting because there's so much going on, and maybe. And maybe that leads to stuff kind of boring me is is because there's so much going on, it, it sort of feels like I'm missing a missing part of it, you know? And and mm-hmm. I, I don't know, it's a little, this movie's a little frustrating. Yeah, no, I I felt the same way where I I was finding myself like, okay, so you know, as we're as I'm watching it, I'm trying to sort of piece together the screenplay in my head mm. where I'm like, okay, so there's this going on over here. We have these people, we have these interested parties. We're learning this about this, this, you know, this uh, conception of the future um, that Cronenberg is laid out here. All really interesting conceptually. Um, and I yeah, like all of the, it- the body horror elements and the design elements of like this, this uh, transhumanist tech um, that that goes yeah, into some it. Gross stuff. There's some gross stuff that I, you know, that I was hoping for. There's a oh, yeah. lot of scenes of uh, Vigo Mortensen gagging in a weird spine chair. Yeah, which apparently I didn't know this, but I read somewhere that prior to doing the picture, he had suffered some sort of back injury. So he's in actual pain while making the movie, and that's why he sort of... Oh, so it's like that scene in Lord of the Rings where he kicks the helmet and he actually breaks his toe? I, I guess. I didn't know about that. I Obviously, I hope he's uh, feeling better, but <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it seemed they, they worked it into the character, which kind of makes sense, because he's one of the things about the character... That separates him from the rest is that he he is able to feel pain, and he and he seems to be able to have some kind of a will to the the organs that he's creating. He seems to be able to manifest them mm. uh, with some level of intention. Which I, here's the thing: I feel like every aspect of this movie is interesting and could have been enough to sell the whole movie like you know this one guy who feels pain and can control his organ growth who is a performance artist who performs public surgeries uh like that's enough this guy who's you know uh genetically altered himself to the point where he eats plastic and and his you know trying to create a society where we we're eating garbage um, to replace it. That's interesting. That can be a whole movie. Mm. Like, like I, I think that part of it is just there's so much going on that could be th- what this movie's about. That it, it just it feels like a lot of um, sort of competing ideas to me. Yeah, that, I think that's that's how I felt about it too. It felt like this is a combination. I mean. The reason it feels like that is because I, I think he he's made those movies. <laughs> like this, there's a little bit of everything he's done before in this. Like there's the yeah. elements of from 
of the surgery stuff from Dead Ringers, and there's the elements of of you know this weird kind of secret society of people who who explore pain and pleasure that you get from Crash. There's elements of you know the new flesh and and the growing of of uh, new organs that you get in a lot of his work, but especially in Videodrome. I don't know if this movie does anything that all of those movies didn't already do better. Um, which isn't to say that this is an altogether failure. It's interesting, but it, I, I think for me, narratively, it just doesn't really work. And it never really adds up to much when, yeah, when it's all I said agree. and done. And, even and if, even if you just kind of strip it down to the mystery element of it, you know, the, the whodunit genre element. Well, that, that doesn't feels, even really pay off. No, that honestly, that almost feels kind of tacked on to me. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. There's a, there, which is a little bit of a bummer. I, I think. I also think that's kind of why this movie was a little boring to me. Was uh, I, I agree with you? I think he's sort of already made a better version of this movie with all these other movies. And it, it, it's not bad per se, but it just didn't feel like, just didn't feel like I was getting anything new from it. You know, it just felt like, Oh yeah, this is, this is a Cronenberg movie. Like I almost think, uh, even Cosmopolis, even though it was a challenging watch, Mm. um, is a little bit more interesting because it's a little more, ambitious it's a little more um actively confrontational with the audience right and it's a uh, it's a it's more focused on what it's trying to say about yeah you know about exactly. its protagonist about its main character and i think this movie's saying a few things i mean there is a environmentalist uh message here there's there's this this kind of idea of sort of the loss of humanity and you know, by stripping away everybody's ability to feel pain, and only really giving that ability to the main character, there's the, he kind of becomes yeah, this messianic figure because he can describe to people what they no longer have, and he there's this idea of like the, art as the ability to accurately describe pain you know like uh, uh, in a grander yeah, I, I feel like the movie but. doesn't do a lot with that like no it, like it, it skims the surface of all of those things yeah and there's enough content there in any one of those ideas like you you already stated that you can you could go a little deeper and that's what with this is it feels a little first drafty i also not to just like shit on the movie more. I don't think it looks great. Like his last few movies are very obviously shot digitally, and there's these, you know, there's these like city scenes and stuff where it's pretty obvious that there's a set that's like half built and then like green screened backdrops yes kind of a lot of uh you know empty warehouses and um, i'm kind of fine with that i like this idea of sort of like this shelled out world but i mean like and i know the budgets are wildly different and the 
storytelling is kind of doing different things. But compare the look and feel of this movie with Children of Men. You know, Children of Men yeah. feels like a lived-in, breathing, living world where there's dust and debris and, you know, and everything is dilapidated, but it also feels like there's an actual society there. Here, everything kind of feels like a set. And I don't think it's... Uh, it's shot very dynamically, you know, but it, it's a lot of mid shots. It's a lot of evenly lit. Um, yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. I, I, I agree. It's, it's visually, there's some cool, uh, like design elements, you know, mm-hmm. like there's some interesting production design with like the weird chairs and the weird um, equipment, surgery machines and the ear guy. Um, but yeah, visually it, it kind of feels like it's sort of relying on that, doing a lot of the heavy lifting versus, uh, uh, it feels a little hollow. Um, it feels like, uh, you know, like uh, a few people on a set. I mean, I Mm. agree with you. Yeah. And you know, his movies are infamously cold and detached. I'm not asking for a, a humanist story well from him you said to com- to compare it to um children of men i thought you were going to say compare it to dead ringers which we well watched, sure yeah know, earlier this year which is for the most part you know is a pretty small cast it's two or three people but it, it has a a texture to it that feels just a lot more real and lived in and and um it feels like there's this sort of world buzzing around these characters. Whereas this just kind of feels like these are, you know, maybe some of the last people on earth. Yeah. Or it just feels like an underproduced movie, honestly, um, for, for the type of story that it's trying to tell. I really like the opening with the, the kid, you know, large part because there's not, reams of dialogue coming out of everyone's mouth, like of nonsensical world building. It's just mm. letting the story play out in real time. And no, I, and you I know, agree. I really liked the beginning and I really liked the ending. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually think the ending's pretty good. And um like kind of everything from the surgery from the actual like per, you know performance of the surgery on I feel like is pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think just, that uh, it takes I think that um, Viggo Mortensen and Leah Sadu are giving interesting performances. Like, whatever accident or whatever that went into his physical portrayal, you really do. He really does embody it. He does with um, what an actor should do with with a challenge like that and puts it into his character. And he also has this very strange look where he's. Where he's has like he's like has a hood and a and like a, a, a mask on. This might have been for COVID reasons, but they worked it into the to the world building mm-hmm. in an in interesting interesting way. Yeah, um, Leah Sadu actually I... gives an emotional performance in a movie where I don't know where that is where she's even allowed to have access to an emotional performance, but Who? she does. Who does? Uh, Leah Sadu. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kristen Stewart, I actually think, is kind of ticky and obnoxious in this movie. Yes, I was going to say, conversely, I actually really did not care for Kristen Stewart. No, she was Um, acting in this movie. There's a lot of choices. Uh, yeah, and not nothing them. against her. I think she she can be good. I just don't think she's good here. Yeah, I agree. Her performance feels a little um, theater majory. Like it just it feels a little like yeah. All, she's wearing all of her choices on her sleeve, and they're not super interesting. No, uh, and, and also the movie sort of doesn't know what to do with that whole subplot anyway. So it's not doing no. her any favors. She could get cut from the movie in it really wouldn't make that much of a difference like at all it, it's yeah yeah to what the actual story is trying to tell like it just and that's what i mean like it just kind of feels like the there's a solid chunk at the end of the second act right like where they're they there are multiple scenes where they're talking about whether or not they should do this surgery and it just sort of is like a different version of the same scene a few times over mm. again uh, that I'm like, oh, okay, like how many scenes are we going to do where you're convincing him to do the surgery? And then what, like, so I mean, like when they finally get to that point and do it and stuff actually happens in the movie, then I think it gets interesting. And then the movie's done. Like, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's a, weirdly paced movie on top of everything else yeah i'm I'm actually i'm pretty surprised by how well regarded this is because i've seen this pop up on lists and stuff already you know everyone's kind of compiling right now and so maybe you know the power of expectations you know especially having low expectations going into the fablemans maybe had some sort of effect and having Somewhat high expectations sure. for this. I mean, I like Cronenberg a lot as a director. I've seen him make bad movies. I know he's capable of that. But yeah, uh, I just to me, it's it's not even that this is just bad. Like I'm, you know, I'm I don't I don't want to totally shit on it. Like I don't think no, it's it's challenging. It's interesting. It is it's 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 taking big risks. I don't. Um, yeah, there's nothing. And uh, you know, there's there's there are things to like about it. Yeah, but no, I I know what you're saying though. Like it, it's, but they it's don't mitigate the problem. The best we've seen from him, and it's not in my best movies that I've seen this year for sure. Like it's, uh, I don't know. It may maybe maybe the part of it is the theatrical run that we missed. You know, uh, it's probably a little different to watch this in a theater with, uh, uh, you know, with people Um, Mm -hmm. that might color some of that. And and, you know, we also just did a pretty exhaustive Cronenberg deep dive. Right. You know, it is possible that that colored our viewing as, as a lot of these thematic things are a lot more present in our minds whereas you know absence does make the heart grow fonder and it's it's been a while since he's released a movie so i can see why you know maybe some people uh romanticized this movie a little bit more than than i am for sure yeah and i like to see that he's still out there making the movies he wants to make and you know they didn't and it grossed me out 
uh, multiple times, so I think that would make him happy. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, you have that. This there, is... were, there were moments uh, where Viggo Mortensen, um, and what you're saying about his performance with the his pain and all that makes a lot more sense, but there were moments where just like, he was gr- like gagging me, <laughs> like just really <laughs> grossing me out. Just ow, 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 ow. like I can't, I can't. What? Come on, dude! You're just making gagging noises in a weird bone chair for 15 minutes. <laughs> um, I really like uh, the Howard Shore score. He does a lot of the, the scores for Cronenberg, uh, and doesn't isn't he the guy who did the score for the Lord of the Rings? I want to say he is. So that'd be a fun uh, connection. Short? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there, there you go. But I, I, I like a lot of his scores. Um, and I've always liked his work with Cronenberg. And I think that the score, uh, helps a lot of this movie for me. But yeah, in general, I don't think it's a must see. Uh, for completists, you know, sure, go for it. It's, like we've said, I think we've seen him do this movie elsewhere better. Yeah. All right. So for the next streaming homework that we do, we're still playing catch up for 2022. I'm going to have us watch on Netflix Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood by Richard Linklater. This is his, uh, his latest adventure in rotoscope animation that ought to be interesting all right and if anybody has anything to say about any of the movies we discussed here or any of the previous episodes you can contact us at our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter and instagram at mcguffinpod uh, leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you use to listen to us on. Uh, follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy, and you can read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. And if you want to see the written reviews that I do occasionally for the Idaho State Journal, just Google Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews, and that'll take you to the Arts and Entertainment page where my reviews are archived. You can follow me on Instagram at KeithFosterKid. Uh, you can also check out my improv show, Improv vs. Stand-Up. Uh, we're done uh, for the year. Um, with shows, but uh, we will have some more shows coming in January. So, um, and that's uh, Saturday nights at uh, Mockingbird Improv here in San Diego. Aren't you leaving something out? No. Mm. I'm not back. I'm not. You're back. I'm not. I'm You're not back. back. I. I just. I. I've reactivated my account once a month. <laughs> Uh, just to keep it from from being completely deactivated, um, I I don't know the the fact that Elon Musk is uh, maybe stepping down is definitely appealing to me. We'll see what happens there. Um, but as of right now, I am not back on Twitter. I 
forgot to deactivate my account the last time I logged in. Mm. Um, but I'm not checking it. I'm not posting uh, the the you news posted. about the gunslinger was a very rare exception that I <laughs> needed to talk about. <laughs> Keith's capping. He is back on Twitter. So you can follow him at Keith Foster Kid, where at, at some point he will be back on interacting with you, I'm sure. Maybe, but probably not. And as of right now, I'm not. Merry Christmas, and that is the end of the podcast. Movies are dreams that you never forget. Bye.